Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, a.k.a. Possibility Man. We are committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Dr. Tamara Beckford. She is a board-certified emergency room doctor and wellness expert. She's passionate about employee burnout and recovery. She is an internationally known speaker and consultant. She is an author, podcast host, and the founder and CEO of Your Caring Docs. Dr. Bedford, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. Look, I'm excited for this conversation. I got a ton of questions to ask you. But first, this programming note to our listeners and our viewers, follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters. It helps us attract guests like Dr. Beckford. Hey, you know, I tell you what, we've been trying to get together now. We, we had to back out of one of them because you had other things going on. But I got a ton of questions to ask you, Dr. Beckford, and I want to start with you. When did you know that you wanted to pursue a career as a medical doctor? Oh, great question. I think you can um, really attribute that to my father. <laughs> so I had this very strong passion for the sciences as a young kid. And um, when I moved to the United States, because I'm originally from Jamaica, I'm from Jamaica. And when I moved to the United States, you know, this passion really continued to reignite. And I moved here um, around 11 years of age. So a little shy of being 12. So now that's a junior high portion in life, right? And at first I said, he said, oh, you should try to, you know, probably be a pharmacist. I said, okay. I mean, you know, you had no true idea of the science professions and um, this attributes to the power of exposure. So mm. as I did a summer program in um, my local medical school, which in turn ended up being where I attended later on, I got the exposure to the career of a hospital pharmacist. Unfortunately, at that time, they didn't know what to do with a teenager, 13, 14 years of age, has not been exposed to any of the deep sciences. So they put me in the basement to file paper in numerical order, the patient's um, medical charts. Now, if you have ever been a patient in a hospital, you know your medical record number is at least 11 numbers long. <laughs> Imagine, and this is during the time of physical charts. So this wasn't mm. computerized when you could just hit a button. So I was literally with the manila folders <laughs> like this and trying to get all these numbers and get it in order. And I said, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I didn't get any exposure to people. And so the year later, I said, okay, I'm going to try again, but this time I'm going to apply to the doctors to see if I can shadow a doctor. And I did. And that was it. Whoa. That was it. I connected with, um, you know, it, it connected someplace in my heart and in my spirit. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is what I want to do. I get to talk to people. I get to help. And, you know, most importantly, I realized that I get to connect with other people. So after that light bulb went off, after that bug was bitten, it never stopped there. And that oh, was wow. around, um, I'd say, 1995. 
around 1995. Yeah. So from then on, I went full speed ahead, (laughs) pursuing Uh this thing called medicine. (laughs) Yeah. So it hit you as in your mid-teens, the the, the medical field. Yeah. At that point, I was 15. That's Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. What kind of student were you? Were you, um, you know, did you have a public school education or was it something else? So I had a uh, a private school education. Uh-huh. I I went to a very small private school, and this is for high school um, in New Jersey. So for anyone who's in New Jersey who's listening, you might, and you're in North Jersey in the Essex County area. I went to a small school called Marylon of the Oranges mm-hmm. Academy for Young Ladies. I cannot forget the ah. last part. <laughs> so my school was a very small school. It had a total of 160 students, which is all female. And my class had a whopping graduating class of 36. That's the mm-hmm. entire graduating class. So I had the um, privilege of really um, getting an education where my class size was very small. So my particular section, I think there were like 12 to maybe 15 of us in that section. And um, what it fostered in me is number one, there were a couple of reasons why my dad um, had me apply and, you know, to go to that particular school. Number one, I was the only child at that time. So I was like, oh, yes. you know, so everything was, you know, all the zones of genius and everything was all dedicated to making sure that I succeeded. <laughs> And um, he also wanted me to have a sense of um, inner strength, um, going to a school where um, I can get not just a great foundation academically, but also um, social skills, um, also skills of um, leadership. So those were all the things that were, um, you know, going through um, his mind when I pick his brain and ask my dad about those times. Uh So those are some of the reasons why um, I went in. So um, in high school, as you asked, what type of student? I was a student athlete. I played all the sports. I did all the activities. um, And, uh, you know, I had a great time and fostered some great friendships for which I still um, hold dear um, now, many, many years later. My best friend and I were both doctors. We met the first day of high school and, you know, we're still friends to this day. That's fantastic. When did, look, I mean, you know, with, with a lot of conversations about the imposter syndrome and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. when did you know you had the right stuff, you know, to get this done? Great question. Especially, you know, back then, no one um, thought about imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. There are a couple of mm-hmm. things that um, as I do a reflection on the different phases of my life that I um, have noticed. One, um, my parents instilled in me the big fish in a small pond and uh, recognizing that when you move to a larger pond, you might be, like we say, Jamaica, the sprat, right? (laughs) So you might start to be the the smaller person in this larger um, community. And so with that, you had to realize that in order for you to rise back to the top, it's your environment has changed. And so you will need to adapt to that environment. Mm. So did I feel like I had the right stuff in undergrad? No. In undergrad, initially, oh. uh, yeah, I didn't do well during my first um, year in undergrad. And if anyone who's not familiar with um, the whole GPA, um, how it works in the United States, it's a weighted. So the earlier you do better, 
the better you are. I am one of those cream is going to rise to the top people. So I might not you know, kick it off, but in the end, it's going to be fireworks and sparks. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's that. um, what occurred. But when you have challenges during transition periods, you start to question yourself. It's up to you to dig deep within and to learn from your past challenges that you have overcome. And so at a very early age, I started to learn and to follow along this trajectory that I had and recognize the pattern that I see in my life. If you notice, I said the cream is going to rise to the top. So I recognize, okay, I might not be kicking sparks right now, but just you watch and see. And so said, so done. By the time I hit grad school, I was a graduate commencement speaker because I had the top. <laughs> so the, wow. the cream was rising to the top. The fireworks uh-huh. were sparking. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had to pull. And, and those same patterns will occur throughout every part in one's life. And so mm-hmm. when I'm going through challenges, I will have portions of self-doubt, but it doesn't mm-hmm. last. Right. Because I recognize the pattern. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, many, many of us who are not medical doctors and many mm-hmm. of the patients don't have a clue as to what a medical education is like. Can you just give mm-hmm. us a peek into what was it like for you, middle, your middle, medical education? Absolutely. So I'll give the, um, the formal portion and then some of the direct emotional and challenging parts mm-hmm. of the medical education. So formally, you'll hear four years of undergrad. Um, For me, I also did two years of grad school, so I do have a master's, and then four years of medical school. So within those four years of medical school, you have um, some, it's a little bit of a hybrid system where one, you're learning some of the clinical um, acumens of medicine, which is the last two years. That's when you hear people say, I'm rounding, I'm going on rounds, I'm in the hospital. The first two years are more of the science years. You're building on the basic science that you learned in your undergrad or throughout the different experiences to learn the nuance of how the body works from its different um, physiological portions. So you learn physiology, pharmacology, and all the ologies at that point, right? So when you hit the third and the fourth year, you're doing the rounding. So now you're getting to learn a little bit more, not just of the science, but also the art of medicine, which is just as important. So yes, I'm rounding on patients, but I'm learning how to speak and to communicate effectively Mm -hmm. with patients. Um, I'm learning how to communicate joy and also pain, right? So there are times in medicine where I'm not, I have to step in the room and tell you bad news. So how does one learn to deliver bad news? That's not something that just comes easily to everyone. So you learn those skill sets um, during those third and fourth year, in addition to learning how to gather data, how to interpret data um, in order to treat your patients effectively. After you graduate from medical school, you then go into your training portion, which is called residency. At that point, you've already decided what type of doctor, what specialist will I like to be? For me, I chose emergency medicine. So with my training in emergency medicine, which I did in Philadelphia, 
I did three years of that. Now, residency is one of the hardest parts of um, the entire medical process because now you do have an MD, you are still learning, but you're also learning in an, in a pace where it's a lot of hours. So you're, you know, a lot of information, a lot of responsibilities um, occur during that time. And you also are not earning a lot, <laughs> but you're no. expected to do a lot. Mm. So emotionally, that takes its toll. Some people start their family during that part. You know, residencies, the least amount of years that this training process is, is three years. And it can go as high up until um, seven years, depending on your specialty. Wow. So some of the specialties that are the longest, which is like a neurosurgeon, like mm. they have they have seven years of training after medical school. <laughs> so right. when you see your neurosurgeons, you give them a handshake because they did it. And, right. and that's included taking a year off to do research. So um, that's the dynamic of what it takes to become a physician before you mm. are now working as we call, you probably hear people say attending, or um, working as a doctor in a community like I do. Uh huh. So what you know, you said that uh, emergency medicine mm -hmm. is your special specialty. Correct. What drew you to emergency medicine? I got drawn to emergency medicine um, during my years um, in undergrad. So the same thing, I'm one who I'm interested in something I'm going to pursue, I'm going to try to get exposure. So we heard earlier, my story when I said, Okay, now I realized after shadowing um, a physician that I said, Okay, I want to be a doctor. Now I had the opportunity to shadow different doctors. And when I shadowed this emergency physician in Newark, New Jersey, I mean, it just hit this um, physician. She she was actually pregnant at the time. And till this day, she doesn't realize the impact that she had on me. So I was just this little undergrad, very quiet and watching. And then she said, yes, you can come and shadow me. And, uh, you know, she was taking care of patients. She had residents who uh, residents that we talked about training doctors who saw patients, they reported to her, she came up and she helped them to think things through as to how to train and um, to treat the patients. And everything was fascinating. From the outside, it was very chaotic, but I felt comfortable. And uh, that made me realize, okay, this might be something that I'm interested in. However, I recognize that um, in medicine, when you make that decision for a specialty, 95% of the time you have to ensure that that's what you want, because there isn't, it's not very easy to just change your mind. You know, the way how the system is, is um, set, it's really like, okay, you've made this decision. Now you're going to training that um, in that path. So while in medical school, I kept a very open mind. I said, let me see if mm -hmm. I do like this. I want to ensure that this is the specialty that I want to go into. And after rotating through the other specialties, it still clicked. Emergency medicine mm -hmm. is it for me. Um, there are aspects of it that really, of course, people hear the adrenaline and they're like, oh, you must mm -hmm. like adrenaline. Um, in some respects, yes. But what really um, draws me to emergency medicine is the ability to connect with the human spirit very quickly. 
Um, mm -hmm. When I open that curtain, when I knock on that door, I don't know what I'm stepping into. Um, you know, someone can be having a very, very great day or they could be having the worst day of their life. But I have That's to connect sure. with you yeah. in that moment. And then I yeah. have to elicit your trust and then I have to elicit your partnership. And that's what I love about emergency medicine. Uh -huh. You know, as just as an outsider, and I'm sure the many people listening to this or watching this will mm -hmm. feel the same way. I can only imagine that a Friday night or Saturday night, mm -hmm. or perhaps Sunday night too, could be, could, be, <laughs> could be pretty messy in an emergency room. Um, tell us about that. What is that? What is that like being there mm -hmm. in an emergency room, especially Dr. Beckford during a crisis? Mm, okay, so we I'll give you uh, the biggest crisis that we just went through, right? Okay. COVID. Let's talk mm. about that. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. Um, one of the challenge that happens when you're going through um, the crisis uh, on an average crisis day, it's a crisis outwardly um, prior to COVID. Um, mm -hmm. You know, our minds were trained to think systematically. So um, when someone comes in and they're having, let's say, a trauma or let's say they're having a heart attack, there are certain uh, the team comes together and then there's certain aspects that we just immediately start to run straight forward and get things done from the outside. Of course, it looks very chaotic. Like, you know, and outwardly, there are a lot of emotions you're watching from the outside. You're not trained to do this. You're not trained to look for certain signs that we talked about, you know, about the third and the fourth year where you're learning um, these art of medicine. But I am right. So I step in. I'm assessing. I'm seeing what needs to be addressed and in what order that it needs to be addressed. Right. Mm. So immediately when I run my list of patients, I, as an emergency medicine doctor, who is the sickest and who is not the sickest, who came in and they were in the middle tier, but now they've moved to the top. Why? Because their vital signs have changed. Now their blood pressure has dropped as opposed to improving with the interventions that I gave, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're starting to have fever. Now they're bleeding. But wait a minute, you didn't come in bleeding, but now you're mm -hmm. bleeding. So you're bleeding. So now you are the sickest. You're vomiting, but you're vomiting blood or oh, you're, have, yeah. you're passing blood um, you know, from your rectum. Those mm -hmm. are the things that goes through our mind. And you have also the breathe, those who come in with breathing or respiratory issues. That's a lot of what we dealt with during the COVID period, right? So mm -hmm. COVID was particularly traumatic for most physicians because mm -hmm. we are used to dealing and handling with the um, onset of crisis, but in short bursts. I always say that, you know, you'll have this rise and you said, "Ooh, that was a rough shift. I had blank amount of very sick patients. But the yeah. difference that occurred during COVID is that it never stopped. So mm. you had the very sickest and it was just onset of sick, sick, sick. And mm. what's also challenging is emotionally, although we're trained to handle, we're trained to handle even just physiologically in, in bursts. And we're trying to handle maybe one person that you didn't expect to look or to have such a bad outcome, mm -hmm. but not a 
ton of people, not a ton of 19-year-olds. 19-year-olds are not Mm -hmm. supposed to die from breathing problems. You know, Mm -hmm. you're 19. Your body is at its fittest. And that's what was happening during COVID. You had young, Mm -hmm. healthy people whose oxygen levels were in the 50s. The normal oxygen should be at 100%. Why is your oxygen 52%? You know? And uh, it was just a consistent young, young people. So when that happens, that takes its toll. And that took its toll on many of the healthcare workers. So that's where you find, um, you know, the burnout that we'll probably talk about later. You'll find the onset of the emotional toll um, that occurred during the time um, of this COVID crisis. Yeah, you know, the, when you talked about that, it's just kind of reminded me of, I know it's different, but like a war zone, being in a war exactly. zone. Exactly. No, yeah, it's, it's not. Going on. <laughs> it's yeah. not different. It was exactly what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. And I'm glad that you say that because mm-hmm. that's what I likened it to also mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. the I believe that the military, just like I'm trained to see a certain amount of sick patients, the military, they're trained to see, like you said, in the war zone. So they're trained in going and seeing 30, 40, 50, very, very sick people who have probably, you know, been at a a site that is just like a site that might've been blown up or they're trained for that, you know? So you're trained, but those in healthcare, especially here, your training was to see maybe two or three. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're seeing 50 all the time. Right. And and right. so you're correct. And that's what I likened it. I likened it to the military where they have the training of the larger um, subset to be able to handle that. But we didn't. But we nonetheless were in that minefield. Right. I'll tell you what. Uh, and we appreciate it, too. But look, I'm going to ask you some specific questions and Absolutely. give me a flavor of, you know, and you'll see where, where I'm going with this. So let's say you're in the ER, someone comes in in crisis, something mm-hmm. traumatic has happened, you know, and they're in crisis when they come in. You know, mm-hmm. no one knows what's going to happen. The family's crazy. Everybody's crazy. You work with them. You stabilize them mm-hmm. and they begin to show signs of recovery. Mm-hmm. And they're able to take to a room where they can later recover, eventually leave the hospital. What is that feeling like when you found someone in crisis, you're able to stabilize them and get them back on the road to health? What is that like for you? It's a it's a wonderful feeling to be able mm-hmm. to, um, and it's a feeling of a lot of privilege and honor to be able to, to save someone's life, to turn mm-hmm. their life around, to have them... Uh, be able to connect and to reconnect with their family. Some people are getting second chances that we have no idea. You know, we're doing our part, but there's something deeper that's happening within their family. We don't know what occurred before they entered the um, emergency department, um, you know, but to play such a small but pivotal role, it's 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 an honor. Um, one of the, I'd say also, for those of us in emergency medicine, one of the key things that we also are unable to is to see the, the finished product. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of work, but we don't get to see how a lot yeah. of our patients turn out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when we 
do have families reach back out and say, hey, by the way, remember me? Because we'll remember some of those mm -hmm. very pivotal moments. This is what's going on with me. I tell you the joy that's inside, it'll give you goosebumps. And that has happened to me and actually have a, a, um, a family member made a, a certificate plaque for me. Wow. And uh, um, it was maybe like a year and a half later, I was at work and one of the security guards says, hey, you know, someone left a package for you here, there. So I looked at it and it came from this family. And I distinctly mm. remember the story what happened with that family. It mm. was... Uh, and I said, wow, most of the time, the last doctor that takes care of them gets the thank you, you know, because mm -hmm. they see that person on a more consistent basis. I'm the first person that you yeah. see. So by the time you're on day 37 in the hospital, you don't remember the person who took care mm -hmm. of you when you were altered or confused or the person that came to pull up some of the diagnoses. So when that family pulled together and said, we wanted everyone who was on the team taking care of our loved ones. We want to send them a yeah. thank you. It was incredible. Right. And I actually got to see the family again a year later from receiving that plaque. And as mm -hmm. soon as I stepped in, they all looked at me and they said, you're the one who saved our dad. And I said, mm. oh my gosh, yes. And I remember mm. everything. I remember the room. I remember which where I took care of them. And mm. it was such a joyous reunion um, because mm. he was doing so much better at that yeah. time during um, this reunion in the emergency department. Right. So I'm going to probe that just a little more. You've already mentioned saving a life because I wanted to ask you, Sure. What is it like, you know, to save somebody's life? But I want to probe it a little deeper. Mm -hmm. Let's say that someone comes in with a heart attack. Yes. You know, and how do you, firstly, two parts of this question. How mm -hmm. do you know which medication could help this person? And then what is it like when you know that, look, if you did not show up, that this person would not have made it. How do you mm -hmm. know what to give? And then secondly, when you know, yes, I saved that life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So with the heart attacks, most heart attacks occur because there's a blockage, there's a blood flow. So when we think of the heart, the heart has two parts to it. There's a mechanical and then there's an electrical system. So that's how wonderfully made we are, right? Yeah. So we have an electrical and a mechanical system. With the um, mechanical, we need the flow of blood to the heart. Why? Because blood has nutrients and it has this especially important thing called oxygen, which all of mm -hmm. our tissues need. So when someone's having a heart attack, the majority of the time, there is a lack of blood flow to that particular part of the heart. When the blood decreases in the um, flow, the person starts to feel pain. Less mm -hmm. and less blood gets there, that's the um, harder the pain is. Mm. So when they're coming in with a heart attack that we use the electrical system to give us an idea, and that's where you're having the EKG, electrocardiogram, because it's showing us on the electrical system, say, hey, there's decreased blood flow, plus the patient's coming in with, let's say they're having a typical symptoms where it's just a hand, fist, clench to the chest, they're mm. pale, they're sweaty. 
there is decreased blood flow. So your job is to reverse the flow of blood, especially mm. in time to get them to the cath lab where the cardiologist can put either a stent, which is a device to keep the pipe open so the blood can continue to flow. So in the emergency mm. department, you're if you are unable to get the doctor, um, if you're in an area where you don't have the cardiologist there in a short period of time, then you are decreasing that blood flow with blood thinners. So that's what we call mm. the lytics. So mm. what is the goal of that? The There's a plaque or there's something blocking it. We need to dissolve whatever is blocking that flow so that we can uh -huh. have the flow go to that particular uh -huh. part of the heart. So okay. that's what, um you know, you think about when you're coming in and you're saying, uh -huh. okay, depending on which area, this is what I need to do. I need to do it quickly. I need to get them to a point where they can get, I am the master stabilizer. stabilizer. That's what I do as an ER doc. So I can get them off to the specialist who will do the definitive or the um, final treatment in order to reverse whatever condition um, that brought them in there. Well, it sounds like a, just a challenging job to have, Dr. V, because there's so many different things that gets, gets thrown at you. But, you know, you um, you also, you're a very busy doctor. You also founded Your Caring Docs. And just for those listening or watching, and she mm -hmm. spells your, you are, your mm -hmm. you are caring docs why did you establish uh, this organization or this absolutely thank you for asking that question so i started your caring docs um in during the pandemic <laughs> so mm -hmm. ironically during that time prior to the pandemic i had gone through some periods where i recognized i love medicine but then i realized i don't think that that is the only contribution that i've been placed on this earth to do I actually am placed to contribute more to society, to my fellow people. And mm -hmm. I went on a period of self-discovery. How can I do this? How can I contribute more? I know some people might be thinking like, what do you mean you're doing it as an ER doc? Yes, mm -hmm. but at this point in time, I, at that point I was like, over 10 years of working in the ER. And I felt that my skill sets included more to give. So as I went through a period of self-discovery, what is it that I can do? Then I decided to start um, Your Caring Docs. It initially started out as a telemedicine um, company, but then I said, no, I'm not going to best serve my people by doing telemedicine. So I um, brought it to the point where I can help organizations and um, companies to decrease their employees' stress and burnout um, through self-care strategies. So I do that because I've recognized that working consistently and working hard, people were starting to burn out. And burnout was um, happening everywhere. It happened during the pandemic to those in healthcare. Um, it happened to those who are not in healthcare. Um, private practice owners, they were losing their practices. There are just so many things that were happening um, to people. So I said, okay, if I can highlight what burnout looks like, if we can use some of these strategies, because although one would have thought that I as an emergency medicine doctor was mm. going through burnout during the pandemic, you'd have been wrong if you put a bet on that. I was thriving during the pandemic. Wow. 
It was the opposite of what should have happened. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. why did that happen? So I had to question myself, why am I thriving right now? And two, what are some of the steps that I've done? And three, I can't hold this to myself. I, I, I need to share this. I said that this whole period of discovery was to be able to, to um, share and to help those around me with the skills that I've learned. And yeah. that's where your caring docs came in. Okay. I recognize and this is so that, important. Yeah. Yeah. This is so important. <laughs> so I recognize and I wanna, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I want to I wanna pause here for just a, just a second because Absolutely. you've thrown out some things that are so important here to make sure that mm-hmm. everyone listening or watching gets this. Now you are, you're still working as an emergency room doctor. So right? Correct. Correct. You started your caring docs. Now, as an emergency room doctor, about how many hours do you work per day? As an ER doctor? Yeah. On average, I work around maybe 10 to 12 hours if we're mm-hmm. including, um, you know, finishing up charts and so on. We have right. active clinical time around mm-hmm. like nine to 10 yeah, hours okay. of like okay, consistent so, clinical. So we can say that you, on a weekly basis, maybe 50 to 60 hours a week as an ER doc? As an ER doc per week, no, I had to okay. reduce that. <laughs> okay, okay. As an ER doc per week, I'd say closer to forty. Okay, that's great. Ooh, that's really short. Now, but in addition to this busy life, professional life of yours, mm-hmm. you launched your caring docs. I mean, that's that's. Uh, where do you get time to sleep, uh, Doctor Beckford? <laughs> What, well, one of the, the great honors is recognizing that sleep is important. <laughs> and uh, part of what one can help to reduce and um, burnout and stress that you have in your life is to rally the support of those around you. I know that a lot of people, and I remember even watching one of your um, prior interviews, you had a um, someone who was on who said that when she was going through some of the toughest periods of her um, life when she um, was going through a divorce after being married for um, almost 18 years that she didn't tell anyone she you know so she kept a lot of that to herself mm-hmm. so during this period I rallied and I got support my family supports me mm-hmm. okay. um, there I have two young kids when I started this my youngest son was a year and a half the other mm-hmm. was three years old we're in the pandemic You know, there's no way that I can do that by myself. I had to, one, recognize, accept help. Um, Get a supportive community, supportive community that is rallying in the direction Mm. where I'm going. I recognize Mm. that I am no longer the person that I was five years prior. Why? Because my mind is set in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So if I want to achieve the goals, then I have to be able to bring those around me and surround myself with people who Mm. are like-minded. So I did Mm. that. Um, So I tapped into support. I tapped into a community of like-minded people who were going in the direction where I'm going, which is like, I believe that I am made for more. That was the community Mm. (laughs) says, okay, I'm a doctor, Mm. but I could do more. And so Mm. we all are there pushing ourselves to be able to contribute to society in other Mm. ways, in addition to medicine. That's impressive. That's impressive. I want to put the spotlight now. You've already opened the door, but I want to put Mm -hmm. the spotlight on burnout. Firstly, what is it? What is burnout? 
<laughs> I am so glad you asked that. So burnout is a physiological response within our body to chronic stress, especially in the workplace. I know now I see the definition is changed in saying that burnout is not only in the workplace, Burnout traditionally is workplace oriented, but it does spill over into one's personal life. I attribute burnout um, to the three Ds, the definition of it. So the first D is depletion. So you have emotional exhaustion that occurs. The second D is detachment. You start to get depersonalized with um, your job. You're no longer feeling that drive that you initially had, that feeling as if you are. And then the third is really um, a decreased sense of accomplishment. So you don't feel like you're contributing well, even though you are, you're not feeling that sense of accomplishment in the work that you're putting out there. And mm -hmm. burnouts, accumulatively, that's burnout. Those those three things, the, the three Ds, the um, depersonalization, the the or depletion, detachment, and the decreased sense of um, accomplishment in your work. Now, the challenge with burnout is that it's a phase, so it's not a night and day, right? Mm -hmm. And through the phases, which are actually five phases of burnout. So when one starts a job, you're going through initially it's the honeymoon phase. And that's when you're feeling mm. that sense of accomplishment. What I do matter. Oh, this is great. I am having such a great impact on people's lives. I'm mm. having an impact on this job. I matter to the team and I can see how I am um, having an impact on the team. Then you have the acute stress portion mm -hmm. where you're starting to feel a little bit of stress. You might have a little irritability here and there, but you're able to manage it. You might see a little bit of mood change, but it's not that much. Then you start mm -hmm. the chronic stress phase with chronic stress phases. You are starting to have some of those um, symptoms where your body physically is starting to have like the chronic headache that you just can't, this belly pain that just won't go away. You've gotten it evaluated and there's nothing quote unquote wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. You're having um, the headaches, the belly pain. You're starting to notice that um, you're being more and more irritable because now you're on the chronic stress. When you've gotten to burnout, you, which is the fourth phase, that's where you're hearing the, the depletion, where you're just giving the, it is what it is. And I'm like, oh, you know, you're doing such a great job. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. It is what it is. Hey, would you like to connect with us? No, you're no longer mm. feeling a sense of accomplishment. You're just emotionally exhausted. You can't get out of bed. When you do, you're in front of the building and you're gearing yourself up. You're having to give yourself a pep talk every mm. single day to get out of the car to get into the building to even to log on you just start mm. to feel just emotionally just exhausted yeah. the fifth phase is the worst phase and that's the crisis phase mm. that one mimics those who are having mental health challenges such mm. as depression and anxiety and with that when that occurs a lot of people get to the point where they're feeling so depressed that they feel like they want to end their life. And that's why it's so important 
for us to address burnout, to recognize right. the signs, the symptoms yeah. of burnout in our team okay. members, in our colleagues, right. in those who we yeah. lead so that we can reverse or intervene right. and not have okay, someone yeah. get to that point. So this just gets me thinking here. So, mm -hmm. I mean, should we, I mean, right, no one can be responsible for self-diagnosing, even though we are responsible for ourselves. So, mm -hmm. but who gets to help us recognize that we have fallen into that state called mm -hmm. burnout? When, when one is in burnout, of course, you recognize in, within yourself, there's some times and what's important is recognizing the phases so that mm -hmm. you can see the pattern so you can prevent that next phase. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. you, however, have fallen into that phase without you recognizing it, it will be recognizable at your job. Why? Uh -huh. The quality mm -hmm. of your work starts mm -hmm. to suffer. If yeah. you were prior a person who delivered top-notch results, top-notch work, but now your work quality has decreased, you are now constantly taking time off, you're either late, a lot of absenteeism is occurring, and you're absent not because you are feeling physically ill, like say, mm -hmm. okay, I caught a flu, then I need to, rest. but you're, you're calling out sick consistently because you can't mm -hmm. get yourself out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, this is so important. What you, you know, mm -hmm. what you just told me, what you, what I hear you say to me is, look, there are two areas of responsibility here. One, of course, you're responsible for yourself, but we okay. always are. But mm -hmm. in addition to this, you're saying, at least the way I hit it, if I if I got it wrong, let me know, is that, you know, managers and leaders also have a responsibility for their to their employees. Right. And they too should be positioned to spot conditions like burnout. Is that about what right. you're suggesting to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because once you can spot it, then you can do an intervention. Right. Yeah. And the intervention mm -hmm. is life changing, this intervention. And it's not only life changing. Yes, it also is beneficial to the company yeah. because now replacing an employee, it's very, very expensive. Replacing that mind, the trust, the information that that person um, and that that person contributes to the team, that's expensive. If yeah. you can help that person by intervening wellness programs, that's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. Workshops in recognizing signs of stress in recognizing and intervening with stress management, mm -hmm. that's what it's there for. But yeah. a lot of people, they don't recognize the different phases until it's too late. But mm -hmm. when you are there as the leader, you will see the signs. Yeah. You can train them on that. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad you work with leaders because I, I think, you know, managers and even CEOs mm -hmm. need to be aware that they're responsible for the not only production, but also for the well-being of the employees. You know, I, I heard you, I heard you talk about, or I might have seen your blog, I don't know, but you talked about, let me see if I can get this right. 
the burnout factory. How do you know if your company is a burnout factory? What was that about, Dr. Beckford? How do you know if your company <laughs> is a burnout factory? Well, you'll see with the burnout factory, if you're having these, like we said, the signs and the symptoms, I know you're dealing with someone who's a doctor. So we're looking mm. from the outside, right? If you're seeing this increased absenteeism, mm. if you're seeing the productivity has changed, if you're noticing that your team, the morale has completely changed, then you know that you have not hit that pulse as to what's mm. going on in mm. your company, right? And we mentioned that there are usually some small but powerful ways that you can intervene. Yes, on the larger scale is providing workshops, training on what to recognize as a part of stress, burnout, mm. prevention. But in the smaller scale, it's tapping into those one-on-one -on -one with your team, tapping into yeah. that one-on-one -on -one with your employees. It's more It's more than the, hi, how are you doing? Because the automatic response is, I'm good or mm -hmm. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Well, do that follow. We lie, we lie about that, don't we? Absolutely. 99.9% <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. of the time. Yeah. Dr. Beckford, you know, I, I just thinking about this because you are you are as you you are helping society really evolve in the way we work with people. You know, if you look at this country, 1800s is a little different than the early 20th century, early 20th century, a little differently. But you know, the old way of employee employ, employer employee relations is suck it up, tough yeah. it out. Yeah. What's wrong with you? You mm -hmm. can't hack it. But you're mm -hmm. telling managers and leaders that there's another way of, of approaching this. So continue to tell us about this other way yes. of looking at an employee may, who may be struggling with something, we're gonna label it burnout. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the what's so important about these interventions, like we mm -hmm. said, going the next step, how can I support you? Do you have everything that you need? Recognizing mm -hmm. where are they aligned with their skill sets? Is it aligned with the job um, or that they are currently doing, right? So when you tap into all of this, what you are doing is not only helping to avert some of these um, stress, burnouts, but you're also contributing to the longevity of that employee in that company. That's for sure. And in effect, helps, and that helps the company continue Overall. to prosper as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So look, burnout is important. Dr. Beckford is the expert. Look up. You've written about this, haven't you? Correct. <laughs> okay. Tell. Okay. So tell us about. And you've worked with other writers on this subject as well. Correct. Yes. So you tell us how can we find your book. So the book is on Amazon. It's called Thriving After Burnout. And it's oh. my story, um, a little bit of my story, in addition to a collection of stories from other um, physicians who have gone through far worse than yeah. what I have gone through in regards yeah. to burnout in different aspects of their lives. For some people, it was during training. Um, for others, it was during personal portions of their lives. For me... When I recognize in retrospect, because at that time, burnout wasn't really talked about, was during the first five years after 
my um, training where I worked as an ER doctor, fresh out of training, working at the maximum. Now, during that time, I worked way more hours than I did now. And I was at a different um, hospital system than where I currently work. And um, I saw the signs and symptoms of burnouts. And for me, my mood changed. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes wonder if people, because I smile so much, I, you know, I, I have a very jovial personality, irrespective of the fact that I work in the emergency room. I see some of the worst things. Um, when I step in, I'm stepping in with a mood of calm. I'm a mood of uplifting. That's my natural personality. Um, when I'm talking about even this thing as serious as burnout, I still have a smile on my face. Why? Because I believe how I can, my um, educating others will help to change the circumstance. So we're uplifting someone in the end. So I recognize that I was at burnout when this smile left. I was carrying home my burden and I never did that prior. My husband, Mm. he said, you're always sad and cranky and angry. And that's not my natural personality. And so I had to look back, well, what is happening? And there were just a lot of stressors that was occurring during that time. My mood changed. The same thing that we talk about, sitting in the car, having to pep talk yourself to get in. I had to do that. Um, Every time it was time for me to go to work, my mood dropped. Mm. I couldn't wait until everything ended so I can come back, you know, so I cannot be in that environment. This is something that I trained to do. You heard my stories. I loved doing medicine. I, I mean, yeah. this is something that I, I thrived and I and yeah. I worked at since 1995. How is it that I no longer wanted that? Mm-hmm. Is it that I didn't want to do medicine? No, it's just that environment yeah. was not the right one yeah. for me. So that's yeah. how I knew I was burnt yeah. out. I mean, I, I tell you, and, and I hope that people listening or watching will really get this. A couple of things you... Uh, firstly, you know, you began to recognize them, let's call them symptoms mm-hmm. in yourself. But what I also heard, and I think this is beautiful, mm-hmm. is that your husband recognized that something was going on with you as well, Absolutely. which enabled you to. I mean, that's so important, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. I'm from an older generation. It's like, forget you, <laughs> figure it out yourself. But 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 you're talking something else. So, so you're big on self-care. You've also already told us about that. And I loved, I wish I had caught it and, and underscored when you said it. You said, one of the things that you do to care for yourself is you enjoy reading scripture, mm-hmm. you know, even start your day with it. So talk to us about self-care. What can we do? to take mm. better care of ourselves, Dr. Beckford. It, it sounds better when it comes from a doctor. So I want the doctor to tell us, how can we take better care of ourselves? I love it. Thank you. Yes, I'll put on the doctor hat again for this mm. portion. And I'll start off with some personalized um, stories. During the time of you know my chaos, I didn't have what I called a wake-up routine. Mm. 
when I started to invest in the personal development that I told you about prior to COVID, one of that was in waking up, I started to read the Bible. Um, you know, I was curious and, and, that, and that's my personal spirituality. For those of you who aren't spiritual in that respect, your time of, might be due to meditation in a different way but that's my time. And, you know, as I continued that, I recognized the first thing that I need to do when I wake up is not pull my phone out and start looking at social media. My day changes dramatically when I started that way. Mm. When I invest in myself, in my mind, before I use my mind to do other things such as enter into the day my day changes dramatically i'll give an example first thing i used to be a snooze queen so snooze button snooze 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 and then i <laughs> learned <laughs> so i um you know learned that hey five four three two one let's get up and go okay how can i do this how can i change this my phone was right beside my bed if my phone is right beside my bed, as soon as it goes off, I can swipe and go right back to sleep. So the first thing is I put the phone across the room. Mm -hmm. So now I have to get up mm -hmm. to turn off the alarm. Mm -hmm. That change alone, powerful. Mm -hmm. Because now no longer, once I get up, then my body's like, well, you're up. I'm like, oh, wow, you are right. Now it's time to do the next thing. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So the next thing was investing in my mind. So what mm. am I going to invest before my day starts? Am I going to listen to all the woes? And am I going to look at all the things that should, 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 the things I have no control over, bombard myself with negative news, negative information, mm. or Am I going to uplift myself with either spiritual upliftment, um, positive affirmations, those who are pouring positive information into my into me? Yeah. I choose the latter. And yeah. that's what I did. So now yeah. I have two things that I've done during that time. After yeah. that, when, and this, this can take probably 10 minutes. You're brushing your teeth. You can listen to positive information, affirmations, um, uplifting stories, ways to improve your life. What the Jim Rohns? Like I'm now. I'm listening to Jim Rohn again. I love him. <laughs> listen to his. Yeah, he's great. He is. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I listened to it back then, and I'm listening to him again now. So those are positive ways to input information. Now, once I have done that. Do you think you're going to be able to get me off my kelter? Mm. No. Yeah, Why? I've already it. invested in myself. Yeah. I love it, Dr. Beffer. That's, that's awesome. Okay. We got a blueprint, folks. We got a blueprint. Self-care from Dr. Beckford. Look, our time is almost up. And I want to, you go all over social media. In fact, you are, I would say you are a LinkedIn guru. Uh, and they, they rewarded you with a LinkedIn's. Is it a top voice, a, a top voice recognition? Uh, tell us about that. Well, what is that? Tell us about, a little bit about that. 
So um, yeah, the LinkedIn Top Voice, uh, we have um, Top Voice in Leadership, um, we have a top, uh -huh. um, some badges, and we have uh -huh. the um, LinkedIn Top Voice in Employee Engagement badge. Um, so recently, LinkedIn gave us the honor, a couple of us who have these badges, to come to their headquarters. And that's mm. one of the reasons why we were actually supposed to connect earlier, like we said, we've been trying to do that, and it just so happened that um, we got invited to their headquarters in Chicago for those of us who were LinkedIn top voices where we did some brainstorming with LinkedIn um, about where the direction that they would like to go, um, the information that they um, love getting from those of us who produce content for LinkedIn. Um, you know, so I'll tell you guys the secret continue producing content. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, yeah. um, they love valuable content stories, mm. um, stories that um, not only inform, but also gives a personal perspective on how mm. you are able to overcome your challenges. So for those of you who like to write or LinkedIn, um, you know, in their different communities. So those are some of um, the insights that they provided. Um, and then we got a couple um, little swag gifts for taking that trip out to Chicago. So it was pretty, it was uh -huh. pretty fun. Well, look, I enjoy reading your posts on LinkedIn. Uh, you are, uh, you are a machine, you know, <laughs> when it comes to that. And by the way, good stuff. I mean, Thank really you. good stuff that helps a person grow one last thing i'm just i had no idea that you were so transparent you know many yeah. of us professionals are like we want to be bulletproof you know but but how why did you come to that you know you're well-trained doctor board certified but yet you give us a glimpse into your life when did you come to that that's i um that's a great question i i think that happened in 2020. I can distinctly remember <laughs> as a part of, um, I was a part of, and I'm still a part of a, a community um, of um, where I am in a um, coaching program. And uh, I was uh, challenged to put a video out on social media. And this was August of 2020. And I said, oh, my goodness, the video was around two and a half minutes long. I don't think I think I held my breath the entire time. Mm -hmm. But that was the start of what you guys are seeing now, me wow. being on social media consistently, being able to talk. So once I got over a little bit of those fears and mm -hmm. I got over, um, I think it, like in Jamaica, we'll say my shame tree dry up. <laughs> So I no longer was afraid of what someone would think about me. Why? Mm. Because if I'm worried about me, then I'm not, I'm doing the opposite of what I've um, been put out there to do, which is to help yeah. others. So there's yeah. someone else out there who wants to go out and to talk, but feel a little bit inclined that maybe this isn't professional to do so. Yeah. Yes, if you are helping someone else with your story, then yeah, as long as you're comfortable, whatever you're comfortable revealing and you're, if it supports and it helps others, then you do it. Um, mm. I know that I'm a professional, right? I know who yeah. I am. 
I know the training that I have. I know the person who I am inside. So at this point in time, I'm confident enough to yeah, handle that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you're doing it. One last thing. On top of all of this, you are a dynamic, engaging podcast host. What's the name of your podcast and what type of content do you try to put out with it? Absolutely. So my podcast is named after me. So it's the Dr. Tamara Beckford show. And with that, I get to engage with my fellow physicians who are doing amazing things inside and outside of clinical medicine. And I tap into their stories. I tap into their background. I tap into why they're doing what they're doing and also what challenges they've overcome with burnouts. Because mm. believe it or not, and this is one of the things I want to say to someone who's going through burnout at this time you're mm. not alone mm. many of us have gone through it so yeah. I always love tapping into the story of finding out what someone looked like what did burnout look like for you and what yeah. are you doing right now to try to prevent yourself from getting back into that phase Ah, oh, that's awesome but look here keep doing what you're doing Dr. Beckford uh, it has been a pleasure sitting and talking with you today Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Dr. Tamara Beckford. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day.